to a first approximation when we are using our little shiny devices, our phones, or, or, or even laptops with keyboards, we're really interacting with the world with one finger, one eye, and one ear. And that's a very impoverished view of how we are brought into the world as humans. You know, we have so much more ability to experience richness in the world, and I'd like to be able to, to take part in that. If we take something like a typical phone interface, the designer has complete control over what one is seeing at any moment. Uh, it's deterministic which pixels are on screen. Uh, and yes, you can scroll and you can page through things, but there's uh, a lot more awareness on the part of the designer of what's in, in view. Now, if you extend that to an immersive experience, and this should not be a surprise, someone can look wherever they want very, very quickly with, with no barriers, which means that it's very hard to to marshal that attention of the of the user. And this is true whether it's a consumer experience like a game, say there's some thing happening in the game and you want people to pay attention to it. Well, how do you get someone's attention without being overly distracting but also being salient? Uh, when doing any design work, I think it's really important for someone, for the designer, myself, or other people to be really honest about what they're trying to optimize for because uh, all design, and I'm gonna separate design from art, uh, and this is why design is more like engineering, all, all design and engineering is a question of trade-offs. There's never a best answer. There's a qualities you're increasing, and when you do that, some things are diminishing. What's up, everybody? I'm Guo, and you're listening to the Not Just Pixel Show. There's a lot to learn as a designer, so in this show, I sit down with design professionals to understand how to grow as a designer and help you get that UX design internship or job. Let's get into it. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Robbins. Daniel currently works at Adobe as a principal designer working across a suite of 3D products. In the past, he has worked on Horizon Worlds at Meta, AR at HTC Vive, VR at Visual Vocal, and more. If you can't tell already, Daniel's design focus is XR design, which stands for extended reality. This is an umbrella term that covers VR, virtual reality, AR, augmented reality, and MR, mixed reality. Thus, I was very excited to learn more about XR design from Daniel, and man, did I learn a ton. We talked about how he got into XR design, the biggest challenges designer in XR are solving, how to get into immersive XR design, and a ton of related topics. But on top of all of this, what I really appreciated was Daniel's attention to detail. In this conversation, you'll hear multiple times that Daniel would often either rephrase my question or ask me to clarify it. It's a great reminder as a host myself to be intentional with my questions and the clarity. So I really appreciate Daniel for doing so. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Daniel Robbins. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. So I would love to start off by talking broadly about XR design. And for people who have not heard of XR design before, it's basically mixed reality um, that combines like VR, AR. So VR as virtual reality and then AR as um, augmented reality. 
And so you've been working in this field for a long time now. And the question that I wanted to start off was just like, what fascinates you about this field? Thank you for asking. And let me break that into two different parts. One is you're essentially asking why am I interested in design, uh, whatever design is, and then why? And then the second question is why am I interested in XR in particular as a avenue to focus my design energies on? So the first one about design, uh, you know, I would hope that everyone can find the thing that they're fascinated with. And for me, it started at a very young age, whether it was drawing rocket ships uh, in elementary school when I should have been paying attention to the teacher uh, or further on in, in university when I kept working on design before we knew there was such a thing as user interface design. Fundamentally underneath that is my own desire to improve the world. Uh, or the flip of that is a, a constant sense of dissatisfaction with the world, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be how a handle on a refrigerator is shaped or the way a customer service database is set up so that they can't mm -hmm. actually reflect who I am. Uh, I've always had this feeling that things can be made better through human effort, through refining the, the built world, whether it be digital or, or physical. So that's design in general. Uh, in terms of XR itself, that ties more into uh, my desire, almost a selfish desire to be able to take the things that are in my head and to be able to share them with other people in a way that engages more of the senses, but also as a way to experience things that I may have experienced previously. If you think mm -hmm. about you know, visiting somewhere that one has been before in an immersive way. Uh, and then also an acknowledgement that we are full-bodied people and that to a first approximation when we are using our little shiny devices, our phones, or, or, or even laptops with keyboards, we're really interacting with the world with one finger, one eye, and one ear. And that's a very impoverished view of how we are brought into the world as humans. You know, we have so much more ability to experience richness in the world. And I'd like to be able to, to take part in that and to bring that to things, whether they be around productivity or even consumer entertainment experiences. Uh, I think that when done well, it can be much more delightful. It can feel more natural and sometimes uh, bring more joy into our life uh, through the, the things we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And I think on the realm of XR, do you recall when was the first time where you got exposure to that field, specifically in the XR space? What was that like? Sure. In university, uh, we had a collaboration with NASA, uh, NASA Ames, who was doing fluid flow visualizations, which is a way of simulating how air, typically air, moves over various aerodynamic surfaces. And they wanted their scientists to be able to visualize this in an immersive way rather than looking at columns of numbers or, or just static renderings. So with them, we gained access to a very early virtual reality device called the Fake Space Boom. Uh, and if you look that up, you'll see that it's a hardware, it's a, a physically connected device. So there was, a, there was a portion that you held to your face with two handles, and then there was a boom that connected that to a stand. So... The sensors were all, uh, I assume, electromechanical, uh, but it, it and it was a grayscale display. Uh, and if you moved in the wrong way, you banged the display of this mm. two hundred fifty thousand dollar device right into its center Oof. post. Uh, yeah. But it was really fascinating to be able to, rather than have to 
you know, move a trackball or a mouse or a bunch of cursor keys to change one's view in, in separate atomic dimensions, that I could just, you know, put this thing next to my face and move my body around, and then I'm moving around some virtual world. So mm. that's probably circa 91, 92, something like that, maybe, was mm -hmm. the first time I actually got to be, if you want to think of as in-headset, even though it was really an eye set. Right. No, I'm sure that was definitely like a eye-opening experience. I'm curious, like, do you think understanding of the hardware itself is helpful for, let's say, anybody who's interested in this XR space and the VR, AR in general? Yeah, though I would nuance that by saying understanding the interplay between what the hardware can do and what human perception is, is super, super important. I mean, I, I won't go into the commonly talked about, you know, accommodation divergence uh, conflicts, but then there are other subtle things such as, uh, you know, how, where, where are focus planes? How far away is focus? Um, how does resolution interplay with how we represent text? Because text is still a, a very high density way of communicating. So understanding that is super important, especially if one is a designer coming from a traditional, say, 2D, whether it be mobile or desktop world, uh, there are a lot of assumptions that we make about resolution and density that have to be adjusted. Mm, got it. Yeah. And I think on the note of that, I think, like, what are some of the biggest open problems you're trying to solve as a designer in XR? I think you kind of touched upon, like, it, it's a different way of interacting with, um, it's not screens anymore. It's more like an environment. It's more like an entire experience. So curious about like some of the problems that you try to solve as a designer in this space. Sure. Thanks. I can say what at the highest level, and this is true of any design, but it's particularly acute when doing immersive design. And that is the question of attention. Mm. And attention has multiple facets. Um, attention is where do we look? What are we thinking about? What are we aware of with our senses? So it's really a coupling, again, of what the senses are attuned to, but then also what we are thinking about both on a cognitive and, and perceptual level. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we take something like a typical phone interface, the designer has complete control over what one is seeing at any moment. Uh, it's deterministic which pixels are on screen. Uh, and yes, you can scroll and you can page through things, but there's a, a lot more awareness on the part of the designer of what's in, in view. Now, if you extend that to an immersive experience, and this should not be a surprise, someone can look wherever they want very, very quickly with, with no barriers, which means that it's very hard to, to marshal that attention of the, of the user. And this mm -hmm. is true whether it's a consumer experience like a game, say there's some thing happening in the game and you want people to pay attention to it. Well, how do you get someone's attention without being overly distracting, but also being salient? Say you're making a productivity app and there's something to pay attention to that the same principle comes up. Uh, and, you know, in the game world, uh, we can do things like, and we sometimes call this peripheral radars. We can sort of show things around the edge of the screen that indicate there's things to pay attention to off in different directions. That's something we have to be very gentle with in VR for a bunch of reasons. One, if you use what's called a head-up display, which means putting things uh, that are locked to your, your plane of view, that can uh, disturb, that, that can create sort of visual uh, discrepancies or sort of disturbances in how one feels in the world. It can also 
remove you from the immersive experience in some sense. Uh, so, you know, often when people approach VR design or XR design, they think, oh, I want to create the Iron Man, you know, interface that they saw in the movies, which is a, to a first approximation, a head-up display. Uh, the problem again is that all that information is obscuring things that you're actually trying to attend to. It uh, creates virgin's accommodation problems because of the, where it's rendered in terms of uh, Z depth. And then it um, also uh, creates a conflict between the, the, the things you're looking at in your field of view and uh, the overlaid interface. So your question was, what's the hard stuff? I'd say the hard stuff really is attention. That's that's the biggest one to to grapple with. Right. Yeah. I remember. I think last semester I did a presentation on using VR as a way to help with stroke rehabilitation, and so that mm-hmm. was one of my first exposure to virtual re- like reality experiences. And I saw this diagram where like I think it's a person, and then there's like an angle out, and I think that's probably their field of view, and then like anywhere on the edge is as you mentioned like things that they will have to kind of turn their head to actually see it and that behind them is everything that they have to intentionally turn around to actually see it so i i just find that really interesting how like i guess like things that we take for granted in real life has to be really considered and actually like i guess like measured when we're designing these experiences right and imagine you're creating a an app for editing something in a, in a scene, an immersive scene. If you were doing that on a desktop, you might have a bunch of tool panels and property panels and different viewers. Uh, but as a developer and a designer, you have very good control over how that space is interacting and that things are not overlapping or, or conflicting. You know, if I select something, say I have a, a typical list view and I select an item in the list view, I can then bring that object into view on a desktop can't do that in VR, uh, or at least not with, with common means. If I have, say, attached to my wrist, I have a list of elements in the scene, or, or XR is it's even hard, harder in, in uh, AR. So imagine I have a list of objects, and it's attached to my wrist, and I click on one of those objects. I can't move my viewpoint to look at that thing, because that might create motion sickness. Uh, I can't move the scene around me, because then it destroys the notion of me being a, an actor immersed in, mm. this, in this world. Uh, you know, there's things we can do with moving proxies. There's things we can do with sort of showing leader lines between that that list item. But controlling the interplay between 2D interface elements and uh, the three-dimensional immersive world is, is very di- difficult. In augmented reality, it's even more difficult because, you know, say I'm looking up at a, a building and there's a overlaid advertisement or I'm looking at... Uh, I'm doing street directions that are overlaid on the world with my future glasses. Uh, if I want you to pay attention to something that's behind you, I can't move your body. You know, that information is where it is. I mean, the actual thing that we're referring to. So we have to be very careful with how we do uh, peripheral signaling. I feel like these are all really important concepts for like people who want to like learn VR and also obviously AR as well. How would you recommend someone who has never learned this before to start if they are interested? Like what what are some of the, I guess, like actionable things or steps that they can take? So I, I do want to make sure that we acknowledge that there are barriers to entry in mm-hmm. encountering some of these technologies. Uh, 
the biggest one being cost, of course, uh, mm. you know, to acquire a VR headset, you know, certainly it's not $250,000 like it was when I was in university, mm. but still three, $400 is money uh, to be spent. So, so mm-hmm. I just want to acknowledge that, that that's a barrier yeah. to entry. If, if one has a way of acquiring or borrowing those kinds of devices, then they are actually in a very advantageous position because there's a, a few free applications that run on these headsets that allow people very quickly, uh, without any deep technical knowledge, to mock up. Uh, when I say mock up, I mean to create an approximation of an immersive uh, application. So say I decided I wanted to mock up something for doing retail sales of shoes, mm. you know, for what, you know, and I come up with any number of things. Yeah. If I was able to acquire or borrow one of these headsets, I could use an application like Shapes XR or, or, you know, there used to be an app called Maquette uh, mm. and people can even, you know, take things like Gravity Sketch or Archeo and, and, and try to use them to mock up these experiences. That's the best way, because until you're in one of these, it's very hard to understand, well, what does it mean? Where should information live? Should it be world attached? Should it be attached to my hand? Should it be attached to my body? Should it be attached to my face? Mm. Uh, and the only way to really grapple with those, other than you know putting sticky notes all over the, the actual world, is mm. to be in one of these headsets and to use, again, an application like ShapesXR, where you can very quickly mock this up. Right. Uh, that will also start to give you very quick understanding of how does text look? How do I manage attention? How do I distinguish between interface and object? You know, mm. that's a very interesting one as well. You know, if I have a, a virtual cube sitting in the world, is that cube an object or is that cube actually part of the interface? And what, where are the boundaries between that? Uh, it also helps, pe- encourages people to start thinking about state. How do I help people understand how interface elements and objects in the world, whether it be virtual or the real world overlays, how those change over time or in response to different user events. So, 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 so that's a very long, so that's part one of the long answer. So part one is play, essentially yeah. what I'm saying. If you have access to the, the still expensive hardware, if you have access to that, the, the applications thankfully are free. Mm. Uh, so so get in that and play with that yeah. uh, in terms of principles and learning from other people you know the internet is your friend a lot of people have written a lot of things and shared it freely which is awesome that said um, I would say there aren't many design conventions yet I can't tell you you know if you want to have a you know a text entry facility where, you know, someone can cut and paste, you know, I can't say there's particular best practices in VR, you know, different applications do these things differently. So when you read an article or a research paper that says, here's a a method, understand that that method in the XR space is contextual to the particular thing they were studying or or Mm -hmm. creating. The follow on of that is that it's a wide open area. It's a green field for new entrants into the world of design to bring their own perspectives and their, their own ways of, of interacting with the world. So while I would want one definitely to stand on the shoulders of previous design, also understand that so much of that is built in very specific contexts. And mm-hmm. you as a new designer get to create your own world. And it has equal equal validity to what has gone before because it is such a new space. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. So to recap, um, obviously the first part is play, which is yeah. whether like borrow or like 
if you have the money to actually purchase a device, then you'll be in a very advantageous spot where you can actually use applications, as you mentioned um, previously, to actually build all these experiences. And then the second part is the principle part of things. So understanding, I guess, like the best practices, but also be skeptical, help, like skeptical in a healthy sense. Um, just know that there aren't actually like, quote unquote, like, I guess, like official principles for VR and like AR designs. So right. definitely great yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah. And then uh, if, if one doesn't, you know, I'm always thinking about equity. If one doesn't have access to the actual hardware, uh, there are still ways to start learning about 3D and learning about interactivity in, in very sort of accessible ways. Uh, you know, even recently, there's a whole raft of web-based 3D authoring tools that are that are exciting and at, at a certain level are free. Uh, one that pops into mind is Spline. Uh, that's a web-based 3D tool that has simple interactivity in it. And that's a great way to start understanding, you know, transformations and animation and the kinds of primitives one might be using to right. to build digital spaces. Mm -hmm. Love that. Yeah, I would love to shift gears and sure. talk about another theme. So I listened to a podcast that you did on Voices of VR back, this is back in 2019, and one of the things that I've noticed was your immense care for diversity of perspective and voices when designing these experiences. And so when designing an XR, how do you make sure that the underrepresented groups are considered and valued? And yeah, feel free to give an example if any comes to mind. So I, I do want to adjust your question a little bit, which is you said, how do you make sure? So that's very outcome-based uh, and you know, I ultimately don't have control. I can't make sure that some outcome is achieved. I can attempt to, I can do my best, and I can also try to do it in good faith. Good mm -hmm. faith meaning that um, it comes from the heart and it also is, op my approach is open to adjustment as I learn new things and encounter new people. Uh, so, you know, both the world is big and the world is small at the same time. And what I mean by that is, there is a community of XR creators who uh, come from under, typically underrepresented groups. And one would have to be pretty obtuse to not find these people and not reach out and start connecting, uh, whether it be through LinkedIn or other, other groups or just design groups and, and doing reach outs in those groups. So the people are there. There is no lack of... of black-bodied and brown-bodied and other, you know, global majority people creating amazing things, uh, right. not only XR, but also AI-based stuff. So the people are there, uh, mm -hmm. the, the people to reach out. And whenever someone from a, uh, you know, an oppressor group like me wants to work with people in that community, the first thing I would suggest is do your reading first. Don't make people in those other communities do the labor for you. So look at what people are writing, look at what people are posting, look what people are making, learn from that. Uh, after one has that sort of base level uh, of, of at least outsider understanding, then try to reach out to people, but make sure when reaching out to people, again, from, from oppressed or underrepresented groups, that those of us who have, have power are, are trying to act not as mentors, not as saviors, but as uh, supporters and sponsors. And, and the, the difference is, a, you know, a mentor is someone who's trying to pass on knowledge. A sponsor is someone who's actually trying to help somebody else up the ladder, if we think about ladders of progress, uh, up above themselves in some sense, and to, to much more about uh, 
taking something and, and giving it to, to other people. So that's sort of the, the, so if we back up to the question, first step is find those communities. They're out mm -hmm. there. They're not hard to find. You know, anybody yeah. can do a Google search uh, or knows their way around, you know, Discord or Slack or any of these other things can find these communities. Go mm -hmm. see what people are making. Quietly watch. Quietly see what is important to these communities. And then humbly offer oneself uh, as a resource and as someone mm -hmm. who wants to learn and to see if anybody's open to it. And they may and they may not, you know, and, and don't right. don't take any of it personally. Um, mm. because, you know, everybody's got their day job. Everybody's got their own things that they're grappling with. Um, so that's a big one. Um, you know, another part of it for someone like me, a, a white body cis male who's been operating in this area for, you know, almost 25 years, a big part of it is to figure out which of the things that people hand to me without even thinking, can I just hand on to somebody else? So that might be like being invited to be on a podcast. You know, is that an opportunity for me to say, hey, thanks for inviting me. And there's also these other people from the global majority who are doing great things who you should talk to. Uh, mm. So there are definitely appropriate times for someone like me to step back. Yeah, I would love to also touch upon another topic that you talked about in the podcast um, which is about documentation. And you mentioned the importance of documenting design rationales by writing them down. That's like your method. I'm curious, like, do you normally have like a decision-making framework or matrix? Because I think just for myself, I find it when I have like different design options, it's kind of hard to know which one is, I guess, like quote unquote, the better option. Um, so just curious to hear your take on that. I would say yes, but it's not formal. I mean, some of this is is has to do with my own context, which is I came up in the world when there weren't design textbooks, there weren't design programs, there weren't design classes, uh, there weren't even necessarily the job titles. Uh, so I never even formally learned any of these frameworks. Certainly, I've I've picked them up uh, here and there informally in the in the workplace, uh, but my own personal orientation is not to over-index on those. That said, uh, when doing any design work, I think it's really important for someone, for the designer, myself or other people to be really honest about what they're trying to optimize for. Because uh, all design, and I'm going to separate design from art, uh, and this is why design is more like engineering, all, all design and engineering is a question of trade-offs. There's never a best answer. There's a qualities you're increasing, and when you do that, some things are diminishing. Uh, so, but let's get super real. Let's take a particular case something I, uh, you know, dealing with at work right now, um, we have a particular, it happens to be VR app, but a, there could be a pass-through XR mode as well. And we're doing a lot of work around locomotion, which is how does one move through the scene or how does the scene move around you? And, you know, we're, we're exploring new, new ways of doing one-handed motion. You know, there's a lot of techniques for using two hands where you're clutching together to, to make the world larger or smaller. And we're looking at how can I do it with one hand? How can I layer on um, rotation with that one hand? And if I do add in two hands, should I be able to scale or not scale myself in the world? Um, if one thinks about the sort of standard two-fingered manipulation in Google Maps on a, on a traditional device, you know, you're scaling and, and rotating and translating at the same time. We can do that in VR. Lots of apps do it. Um, but there's an internal debate within our own group for this particular application we're making about whether we should allow scale. 
should we allow you to change your scale relative? The framework for answering that question sort of in my mind has two different facets to the rubric. One is how important is it for, for me as the user to have a constant sense of understanding my scale in relationship to the objects I'm giving my focus and attention to? So that, that's one criteria. So I'm not necessarily going to call it a framework. I'm going to say there should be a set of criteria. What's the thing you're optimizing for? So in the particular application we're working on, I would say it's super important that someone always have an understanding of how big a thing is that you're looking at, whether it be a shoe, whether it be a car, whether it be a building, you need to understand how big it is. That then has to be um, negotiated with the other desire, which is, well, gosh, I want to... I'm not in the real world. I have some magic abilities. How can I move? If I say I'm looking at a building mm. and I'm at the ground floor, and now I want to be up on the top of the building. Do I have to clutch with a, you know, with my hands to move over and over and over again to essentially climb the wall of the building in real mm. world scale to get to the top? Or can I temporarily make myself super large uh, and then move relative to the world in, in very large amounts and then scale appropriately to be standing on the top? Right. So those two. So so the the question then for the second becomes how important is it to be able to move around quickly, and will moving around quickly remove that sense of scale? And for that, uh, ultimately, you have to do user studies. You have to bring people yeah. in, and you have to ask them, can they make judgments about scale? Uh, and then you can start to say, well, maybe they do, but we can. We'll say that there's different phases uh, in the usage of the product. And at some points we are doing locomotion and other points we're making judgments and maybe people can move back and forth between those. But what you should notice from the way I'm talking about this is throughout this are, are the threads of trying to be really honest and concise about what we're trying to optimize for. So in that particular uh, overly verbose description, we're trying to optimize for having a sense of scale, but we're also trying to optimize for getting around the world quickly. And, and how do we do that? Uh, and something has to give at some point. Uh, either we multiplex things over time or we do things like teleportation so that you might have to reacquire a sense of, of location. Um, but those are those are things to grapple with. So the long answer to your, your short question is, do I use frameworks? The answer is no. Do I use criteria? Do I use ways to, to judge? Did we, is this the right path? Definitely. Mm. And it sounds like these criteria are also tra like transform into questions that can, it's like, I guess, like prompt, like different kinds of solutions to these criterias. Sorry, can, can you help me understand your question more? Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the the criteria that you listed out, Um, first one is about scale you it sounds like there's often also like i guess like a how might we question or like a question about that criteria that maybe will prompt like i guess like further discussions and also potential different solutions yeah and i and i think it's really important to own up to which of these things are assumptions that we have coming into it so mm. if i'm designing a particular thing i might come in with the assumption that people can only have a sense of scale relative to an object if they're one to one with it mm. But that's an assumption. I don't know if that's true. You know, you know, if I'm if I scale up a shoe so it's the size of a house, do I still understand that it's a shoe, or do I think it's a, that that is a, you know, a shoe size thing? And you know, and I'm looking at the detail, the stitching. 
Mm. Or do I, or do I think uh, it's actually a big house, you know, that someone mm. made in the shape of a shoe? Uh, right. so, so we come into these things, all of us with, with biases, not just cultural biases, but culture, you know, if I saw a shoe the size of a house in the real world, I might think that's not a shoe. It's some sort of crazy art project in VR. Maybe that's not true or, or AR. So we have to interrogate our own assumptions not only about, again, about culture, but also perception uh, and be very flexible about it. Yeah, maybe maybe people are really good at sensing scale or maybe there's other cues that we can add to the environment that really reinforce the actual size of a thing. Uh, and sometimes we have to go back to first principles. You know, sometimes we have to look at research work that's happened. That said, a lot of the prior research, again, is in the context of, of non-three-dimensional displays, whether it be on desktops or, or other or projected displays. Uh, so we have to take all, you know, we have to take a lot of prior research with a, a grain of salt or, or try to reproduce the results. Reproducibility is certainly important. Also understanding that there's a, a variability in people's ability to navigate these three-dimensional spaces, uh, different degrees of propensity for motion sickness. Mm. And that's really important. So as an example, and I, you know, and I, I do think grappling with bias is really important. I tend not to feel any motion sickness in VR, which is actually a problem because it means I can design things that'll make most people sick. And I think, oh, it's a fine design because it works for me. Uh, but I have to remove myself from my own frame of reference. And, and the only way to do that is to talk to other people and try things out with other people. And I would love to... I guess bring it back to XR design and also the general picture of things. What is your take on the current status of XR design and this industry? And how do you see it progress as years pass? Thank you for the question. So I would say it's an exciting time in terms of the design space and the degrees of freedom and what people can make. Um, I don't like the term democratization because it implies essentially that things are free and they're not. Everything has a cost, even if it says it's free. Uh, that said, the the tools really are uh, very, assuming you can get your hands on a headset, the tools for exploring new uh, designs are really quite accessible. And that's really exciting. Uh, I think of it as analogous to the early days of Flash, which was a sort of an animation interactivity runtime that for a while was accessible on the web. And when Flash came out, you saw a ton of weird, kooky designs, everything from, you know, ways to navigate a website to proceed through different information spaces. And most of it was really very unusable, but it was very exciting and it, it allowed a kind of freedom uh, to a much wider audience than had previously been available. And I think we're at that point with XR design uh, to some level. And now that we have okay pass-through, it's not great, but okay pass-through in a certain class of devices, and that will get better, people can start to really ask, what does it mean to overlay digital information on the real world? Uh, so, so that's one side of it. Uh, the doom and gloom side of it, though, is that obviously VR, XR adoption in the real world has not been at the levels that, that many of the entities that have spent billions of dollars on this had hoped. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, you, one is that we've done such a great job at creating phones and phone-based experiences that it's really hard to displace that. Uh, also, our fundamental characteristics of solitary versus social, social experiences. I can, you know, 
be on the bus and hold up my phone and show what's on it to somebody else. If I put on a headset, I'm not doing that. If I put on AR glasses, I'm not doing that. Um, and those are that's a fundamentally different way of being social in the world uh, and being around people. And also a that headwind around people not wanting to do only one thing at a time, whether that's good or bad, has also, as I said, been a a restriction on the adoption of, of these kinds of single person immersive experiences. So, 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 so there's two sides ultimately. One is that the design tools are becoming quite interesting. The hardware capabilities are becoming quite interesting so that you can create wild and crazy, awesome things. You know, if you think about Gorilla Tag, that was made by one person and, uh, you know, with zero marketing or anything like that, uh, took off and went from the app lab to the, the app store very quickly. That's exciting. Uh, you think about what Niantic originally did with, you know, AR type stuff and, and whether it be film based or other stuff, you know, originally that was pretty low budget. The biggest, the hardest thing for them was getting the map data and registering things to the maps. Right. That stuff is becoming much more accessible. You know, there are, there's, APIs that one can use in SDKs to mm. overlay things on the real world uh, in exciting ways that, mm-hmm. that almost anybody can do. On the note of like, I guess like the future and where you see it progress, I think one, I guess I, mm, I don't know if this is devil advocate, but I think just one thought that I had is about the balance between let's say VR and also the physical world, because I've definitely seen videos of like people trying to be in VR spaces for 24 hours and then they, actually don't end up like enjoying that experience. So I think I think the the question of like how we balance these two different types of experiences is something that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on, especially as the technology gets more and more advanced and with um, this field getting a lot more accessible. So can can you help me understand the question? Yeah. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on like how can we I guess like balance the VR experience and also our interaction with the physical world. So I think the premise of your question, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that uh, we may get to a situation if the hardware gets good enough and the software experiences that there will be some segment of the population who goes in headset and then doesn't come out uh, or, yes, that, or may, kind of may, have, may have trouble in some black mirror sense self-regulating their use of, of, of that technology. Um, yeah. You know, I don't have a panacea there. I don't have a... a silver bullet to solving that other than to say uh, most things in the world tend to self-regulate because there are other things going on in the world that people also want. So Mm -hmm. while somebody may notice that they're spending hours on TikTok to an exclude, you know, or some other social media or, or entertainment app at some point, other ideally other needs are going to press on them such that they take a break. Uh, Of course, you know, and I don't want to overuse the word addiction because it has a very specific medical definition there. Uh, if things do skirt over into that so that someone doesn't actually have control over themselves anymore, that's a, a much bigger problem. I think it will be really interesting to do research to know whether the people who are sucked in in ways that they feel like they can't self-regulate, whether that is a, a feature, of a function of the technology or propensities that that person already had and that they would have found something to lose themselves in no matter what it was. So for me, um, that is not the area that I 
worried about at this point. Some of it could be my own short-sightedness around how primitive the technology is right now and, and just seeing that to a first approximation, it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so, you know, talk to me in 20 years and well, it's, you know, when it's a contact <laughs> lens uh, mm. and, and, you know, nothing in the world is as it seems, that will be a, a much uh, darker thing to ponder. But right now I'm, I'm not particularly worried. We could maybe do like a part two in like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> if, if there happens to be a contact lens for VR, yeah. I think that would be really interesting. Or, or the tap. <laughs> yeah. So I know we're almost running out of time. So I do want to go with the final question. Um, if you're now facing yourself but 20 years old, what career slash life advice will you give the young Daniel? Plastics, plastics, plastics. No, um, <laughs> what I would what I would say to myself is, again, I also want to ground this in that different people have different mobility in the world, different mm-hmm. uh, amount of privilege and ability to grab what they want uh, or, or immerse themselves, <laughs> if we want to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when people come in and say, you know, uh, do what you're passionate about, that is a very, in some sense, an arrogant statement because it assumes that that someone has the freedom to do that. I would, I would certainly hope for for anybody out there that they could do the things that they love doing. More importantly, and that they can find a way to pay the rent, <laughs> uh, because and and healthcare, unfortunately, in this country, uh, but not everybody has that freedom. Um, that said, I would, I would still say to myself is to find the angle in any, in any vocation that really taps into, into my passions. So Mm. no matter what one has to do, you know, to pay the rent, there may be aspects of it that, that can engage one's humanity and one's creativity. It's tough. Uh, you know, if I'm on a factory floor, I may not be rewarded for being creative. I may not be rewarded for being overly social, uh, and and that's tough. So I, I don't know right. necessarily what to offer there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also in certain professions, people may have less energy when they're not doing those things. You know, when they come home at the end of the day. Uh, whereas I've always had the the amazing fortune to have a lot of energy and be activated and and rewarded for being creative. Um, so so. I don't think your question is, while your question may be simple, I don't think the answer is simple. You know, what would I say to myself is I'd say, you did great. You did awesome. Uh, the world worked out for you. It really was your oyster. Uh, awesome. That's great. And But please, please, along the way, try to, to give more to other people as much as possible. Um, but I think your, your question you're really asking is like, what field? Like, should I learn how to code? Should I, you know, paid more attention to AI? Should I have done this other thing? It's like, no, you know, my, my path worked out spectacularly well for myself. And then your, your, you know, between the lines question is what would I recommend to somebody else? And again, that depends on what position they're in, what advantages they have, uh, what they don't have. So, so I don't have a simple answer to that. It's interesting to hear like different people have like different answers for, for this question. And I think it's totally up to interpretation. So I really appreciate the different angles that you took for this question. Um, and I think with that, that rounds off the episode for today. So Dan, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you. Thanks for reaching out. And uh, I hope I get to connect with a, a bigger audience and I hope, in the future, we can also make this platform available to uh, a more diverse uh, group of people who have amazing things to share. 
Hey there, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate your time. And again, before we say goodbye, my name is Guo, and you've just listened to the Not Just Pixel Show. And I'll see you in the next episode.